Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, the show for anybody curious to learn about where their food comes from. This is episode 52. We have made it an entire year with podcasts thank you so much for listening this show of course you know like most podcasts wouldn't be around if there wasn't an an interest and so thank you all for listening i'll go over some quick metrics with you if you're curious over the past year we've had you know 52 episodes that has equaled about 26,000 downloads which comes around to about 72 downloads per day which is not bad at all for a first year podcast so thank you so much for listening Can't wait for you to listen to season two, which will come out in about two to three weeks. I will let you know when it comes out. We're going to take a quick little break and then come up with season two, which is going to be, drum roll, it's going to be focused on organic agriculture versus conventional agriculture. So same format, new guests, but we're going to talk a little bit more with each guest, kind of why they do organic, why they do conventional and all that good stuff, not to make any industry look better than the other, just to get an honest perspective and figure out why organic and why conventional are happening and what you, the consumer, can do to kind of better educate yourself about those two production methods. So before we dive into our episode today, I asked for some questions, a quick little Q&A since we have episode 52. And so we have some quick little Instagram and Facebook questions that I'll kind of answer. It's only like four, so... They're really cool. Um, So this one was on our Instagram page. How important is the ability to have a homegrown food supply for the United States? So that's a good question, especially given right now, in end of March, early April, we have the COVID-19, aka the coronavirus, and a lot of people are actually buying less and less produce because it's not going to store for however long they might, you know, be self-quarantined. So if we have a homegrown, a homegrown food system, at your house, then guess what? You don't have to go out and buy food that you think may spoil. It can just grow in your garden, and if you need it, you can pick it. That's pretty cool. So, great question. Moving on, 
This one is from Tim Hamrick, who is a guest on the show and also has the Future of Ag podcast. His question is, what issues should ag be unified about and which should be okay to have different, differing perspectives and opinions? Something that I think an issue that we all should get around with, and I know it's going to seem like a weird issue, but I think it's the biggest issue we face right now, and that is labeling. I mean, with labeling, there's so much false information out there because really when it comes down to a consumer, that's what the consumer sees. They don't really, they're not really interested in agriculture as we are. And so really when they see a food label, that's the most education they're going to get normally. And so you have all these random packages that have random claims that cannot be calculated, cannot be researched. Like we have a bag, um, you know, because food is running short, bread's running short because everybody's staying at home and hoarding stuff. Well, we got a, like the last loaf of bread on the shelf and it said with no added nonsense. Okay, what's the added nonsense that normal bread has? I mean, there's just all these, all these labels that have scare tactics and stuff in. So I think that's something that we all can kind of push for maybe better regulation, maybe something companies can do to where they have honest labeling practices, or you, if you put organic on your on your product, you can only use the USDA certified organic or something like that. So that's a great question. And the other thing, what is something that it's okay to have differing perspectives on? I think production practices are something we can have differing opinions on because, I mean, when it comes down to the farmer, they're doing what they think is best for their crop, for their soil, for their income. And so I think we're all going to have different um, growing perspectives and ways of growing food, or at least all farmers are. And also it's going to depend on their environment, whether they're in Mon- in um, Minnesota or Hawaii, they're going to have different production methods. It might not look like the best way if you're a farmer, but I think just respecting their research and their production, I think is a key thing to do. So two more, this one's from farmer advocate, AKA David Hafner, who we also had on the show. His question was, how do we break out of the agriculture echo chamber to reach outside audiences, social media? That is a great question, but I think the more and more farmers get on social media to show what they do on a daily basis is great because I think all, I mean, basically all consumers, almost everybody is on a social media platform, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, whatever. And so I think if we can go to those social media platforms and showcase what's going on, Consumers can see us in their living room or in their kitchen, wherever they might be, or, I mean, you know, probably on the throne, uh, checking out stuff. So, I mean, if we can go where consumers are and teach them a thing or two, awesome. Let's do it that way. So I think social media is a great way we can break out of the echo chamber. And then last one from Jeremy Meyer, my cousin from Texas. Hello, Jeremy. Uh, His is, how is the coronavirus affecting farmers in the industry? Good question. I was not sure about that until a couple of days ago. There's this huge hashtag going around called still farming. Like farmers are still out there. They're still tending to the crops, taking care of their cows, cattle, everything, because they're still supplying us with food, even if we have this pandemic going on. But also because people are buying items at grocery stores or supermarkets that can last in their pantries longer, fresh produce consumption is kind of going down and so there's not a huge demand for fresh produce right now because it you know it doesn't last nearly as long as like canned food or or um, processed meat or something like that so it's it's weird it's it's kind of affecting farmers that way because fresh stuff isn't in demand right now because everybody's preparing for the long haul for a long quarantine so 
So it's a very strange time, and I really hope you know that you're all being safe, self self quarantining. Um, you know, using all the Purell, washing your hands, and staying safe. Hope this stuff blows over soon. Anyway, so again, thank you so much for those questions. Thank you for 52 great episodes and for helping the show stay aloft. I can't wait to see what happens with season two and year two. I hope that we can possibly get to 100,000 downloads this year. So let's see if we can quadruple our downloads. So, you know, fingers crossed. Again, share with your friends, share with your family. That's how the show grows. So on with the show for today, our guest is Matthew McClanahan. He is an ag lawyer and advocate from the great state of Tennessee. So in our interview today, he's going to talk about his responsibilities as an ag lawyer and what some common law issues that come up like estate planning lawsuits and quote unquote handshake deals. Also, what the industry is like in Tennessee, and that's actually Tennessee's number one industry, and that's agriculture. And also what he's doing about advocating for Tennessee agriculture and United States agriculture in general. So it's a really cool conversation we're going to have with Matthew. Be sure to check him out. He will tell you his like Facebook and Instagram handles at the end of, at the end of the podcast. So hope you enjoy this episode 52 with Matthew McClanahan and on with the show. All right, so you staying safe with the coronavirus so far? I am. I've been practicing uh, social distancing <laughs> for about uh, since Wednesday of last week. So trying to do my part to flatten the curve. Hey, well, there you go. Well, you'll, you'll enjoy this story. My dad, um, he said, we actually had a record number at church the other day. And even oh, though wow. the, pa- the pastor sent out an email, like all elder- elderly people stay home, only the young people come to church. Well, all the older people came. And my dad right. said one of his friends that's there was like this 93-year-old guy. He was like, well, I'm glad all the young people came to church today. <laughs> so it was really yeah, right. yeah. They've all got good spirits about it. Well, good. Well, good. Yeah. Of course, now the president's saying that any gatherings over 10 people are discontinued. I don't know if you I, saw that. I saw that. Yeah, I just saw that on my way home. 10 people or more are canceled. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm crazy. just... it's crazy times that we live in oh yeah no absolutely i saw something and it was like um because i mean you know we have hurricane season out here in florida all the time and there was a meme and it said uh rest of the country welcome the hurricane season sincerely florida right. yeah exactly <laughs> all right well matthew McClanahan, welcome to the farm traveler podcast how are you doing doing wonderful thank you very much for having me and hey absolutely i'm glad to have you back on this is our take two we had technical difficulties the first time, but I'm excited to have you on a second time and have you record everything. So I'm glad you're doing good in Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about your background. You, you're an ag advocate. You're a preacher. You're a lawyer. You have, you're a jack of all trades, basically. So tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So basically, I'm a farm kid. I born and raised. I was born and raised on my family's beef cattle farm here in Crossville, Tennessee. My grandfather taught ag education for 42 years. So 4-H and FFA were in my blood and uh, took part in, in FFA all throughout high school and took part in 4-H uh, throughout uh, elementary school and just love the farm, uh, love agriculture. And whenever I went to college, I majored in agriculture at Tennessee Tech University. And when I graduated, I worked for Farm Bureau for four years as an insurance agent with the Tennessee Farm Bureau Insurance, 
and got the opportunity to go to, go to law school. And, uh, you know, really thought long and hard about it. I love my job at Foreign Bureau, but it was sort of too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I decided to further my education at the University of Tennessee College of Law. And now I'm a practicing attorney. Not bad. That's a good little background. So um, what's your what's your law career like? I mean, what are some of the main ag focuses that you guys kind of talk about and your biggest problems? What are kind of some key themes about when it comes to being an ag lawyer in Tennessee? So being, being an ag lawyer is in some ways no different than being any other attorney. You're, you're always trying to serve your client's needs. You're trying to help them discover any potential landmines that they may or may not be aware of, make sure that they're being able to achieve their goals in the most efficient, practical manner possible. The biggest things that I see, the first thing is just either a lack of estate planning or farm succession planning. And I think that that's, that's one of those things that a lot of people just put off because it's a hard conversation or there's a generational gap and, you know, older adults, you know, don't want to have that conversation because it makes them confront their own mortality or they feel like their, their kids are, you know, maybe aren't ready to take over the reins or maybe they're still seeing their, their children like they were whenever they're eight or nine years old and don't realize that they need to bring them into the, into the farming operation and people just don't talk about it. Um, and the kids don't want to bring it up because then it looks like they're greedy or they're, you know, money hungry or something like that. So you sort of have basically nothing that happens. And then, um, you know, we're left with a situation where things go maybe a, a way differently than what the parties had intended. I always tell people that either you do your estate planning or the state of Tennessee does your estate planning for you. So if you don't have a will, then there are some underlying guidelines, what they call the intestacy statutes that kick in that dictates, you know, where your property goes. So making sure that you have an estate plan in place, that it's something that you understand and that you're going to be able to be able to communicate with your, with your parents and with your children and everybody understands what's, what's going on because a lot of businesses and farming is a business. A lot of businesses don't survive that handoff. So making sure that there's a plan in place makes that handoff a whole lot easier. Uh, another big issue that I see is when it comes to leases, uh, a lot of, a lot of deals are still, handshake deals and you know that there's something to be said for that and I'm a firm believer that a man's word is his bond and if you know you shake hands on a deal then that then that should be the deal but you know we live in a in a different day and time than maybe what our grandparents lived in and unfortunately you know we just we just need to reduce those things to writings and there's just I mean that's just the, the best way to make sure that everyone's on the same page also something that happens a lot of times that I see Maybe you have a relationship with the landowner and maybe you've been operating on a handshake deal for years and years. Then maybe the landowner passes away and the kids are in charge or, you know, he or she gets to a point where, you know, they're no longer managing the, the farm and, and somebody else comes on, you know, making sure that those agreements have been reduced to writing. That's going to make sure that any kind of litigation or any kind of questions are, are easily resolved. Uh, a lot of times with attorneys, 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, you could pay, you know, someone a, a much more reasonable amount of money to draft a lease, to draft a will, to draft a trust, as opposed to, I mean, it's 10 times that amount to litigate that matter on the back end. Uh, another big issue that, that we see in Tennessee is in regards to fencing and, you know, where, where that fence was. A lot of times those original property surveys, if you ever you want to have a laugh in uh, these days of social distancing, people may have some more time on their hands. But if you ever read some of those old property uh, descriptions, I mean, you'll see things like, you know, where the large oak tree is or where Joe buried the old black mule or where the creek bends. Well, those are all things that have most likely changed since that property description was, was put into place. Nobody knows where the old black mule was buried. That tree blew down 30 years ago and the creek has changed course three times since then. So when it comes to encroachment and fencing issues, making sure that you have an up-to-date survey, making sure that there is an agreement between the adjoining property owners about whose property is whose. Those property line disputes are, are a common source of litigation in Tennessee. And one that it's, it's, that's another problem that it's best to address that head on and have those tough conversations with your neighbors as opposed to fighting it out down the road in a courtroom. After we had the hurricane down here, I had no idea that this was a thing, but Apparently, if you had a tree in your yard and that tree fell over into your neighbor's yard, it is now your neighbor's responsibility to take care of that tree, even though the tree was completely sure. in your yard. That's yeah. very interesting. Are there, are there other like common, I guess not really misconceptions, but other kind of like ag-related laws that people really don't know about in Tennessee? You know, the tree one's a good one. That, that kind of brings to mind about that. I mean, it's because a lot of, a lot of fence rows will, will, be, will have trees and a lot of property line will be will be marked by large trees and on that note it's as far as the liability that comes from that so if if it's a healthy tree and if you look at the tree and i mean you're and of course you know you're a lay person you're no arborist necessarily but if you just look at the tree and you think it's you know it looks fine it looks healthy and you know the next day maybe a terrible storm comes through you know we, we've just experienced some horrible tornadoes where uh, in, in putnam county which is the county uh, adjacent to where I live, uh, we had, you know, 19 people lost their lives. And, uh, you know, a terrible storm comes through, blows down the tree. Well, if it's a, if it's a live tree, and even if it blows, maybe it's, a, maybe it's on your property, but the wind blows it over onto your neighbor's barn or your neighbor's house, well, you're not liable for that. You know, that's, that's just sort of an act of God. That's just one of those things that happens. Now, if that's a dead tree, and if your neighbor has put you on notice, your neighbor's sent you a letter and he said, Hey, Trevor, he said, that's a dead tree. I can see tree limbs falling out of that. It's, you know, it's all hollow inside. It's a danger to myself and my family. You need to do something about that. And then the wind blows it over. Well, <clears throat> now it is your problem. And that's something that would make you susceptible to a lawsuit. Um, so I think that a lot of times people, people think that maybe they're liable for something when they're not, or, that um, you know they're they're just they're just not aware of what their rights are and what their duties are under the law. Um, two other things that come to mind is the fact that in Tennessee, you know, we have a right to farm statute, and basically that gives our farmers a lot of protections. One of those being that you can't sue 
your uh, if you're if you're a non-farming neighbor to a farm, you can't sue that farmer for a nuisance. You know, so in agriculture, it sometimes we uh, produce some odors based upon our livestock production. Maybe we um, produce a number of other you know just natural. Uh, things that come from the farm. I mean, it's just, you know, whether if you, if you live next to a hog farm, you're going to, you know, smell pigs, you know, that's just, that's just part of the deal. Well, if, if that hog farm is, has been there for a hundred years and you decide to move out to the country, well, you can't then sue your farmer neighbor um, for those, for those odors, of those hogs. Whereas if you're living in a subdivision in Nashville, then you can't really uh, bring a, a, you know, a mama sow and a couple of pigs and run around your backyard. Your homeowners association may have something to say about that. So uh, knowing that you do have some protection with uh, that right to farm, and we also have some extensive liability protection in the in Tennessee in Tennessee statute book um, that prov- that provides some protection for agritourism operations. So. Whenever you come out on the farm and you run around a quarter maze, you know, ground is uneven that, you know, just being outdoors, that there are some risks associated with that. So if you trip and fall on a farmer's land while you're going through a corn maze, you, you're not entitled to, to sue them uh, just because you're, uh, you're on somebody's property. I, I, another example of that is sort of an interesting case that I worked on. There was a situation where uh, there was a equine operation and he had the had it set up where he would dress up the horses like unicorns and a lot of little girls would you know want to have their picture made with a unicorn and they would bring you know people would bring their children out to this this man's farm and he would you know decorate the the horse up and you know pose them in such a way that it looks like they're a unicorn and you know a little girl would look like a princess well unfortunately uh, you know, horses are, are animals and uh, mother and daughter walked up on the wrong side of this horse and the horse kicked uh, the child. Child wasn't seriously injured, but she was injured. And the mother tried to sue the horse farmer in that circumstance. Well, that statute barred that lawsuit and a uh, farmer was able to obtain a summary judgment uh, dismissing the suit and uh, he was able to be protected from that. And, you know, that's just sort of one of those things that's kind of common sense that, that maybe we, we think about. It's like, hey, there's some inherent risks of, you know, being out on a, in a, in a you know, feedlot with cows or in a barnyard with animals and horses and that you just kind of got to exercise a lot of, a lot of care. And uh, certainly no one wants to get hurt and everyone's sorry to see anybody get injured. But our farmers are living in a much different society, a much more litigious society, and we need to put some um, preventive measures in place. That's what the state of Tennessee did. You know, uh, it's uh, farming's hard enough as it is without having to worry about getting sued um, for for some things that just just occur. I didn't really grow up around horses, but I know how how powerful they are and how a kit can send a grown man to the hospital. And I mean, that's something you've got to be careful for. That's for sure. Now. I know agritourism, you were mentioning that, is huge for farms. People can come in and see what's going on and how their food is made. And I know that biosecurity is a huge thing. So are there any things with the right to farm or just Tennessee ag law in general that kind of protects different farms in terms of bio, or in terms of um, any like biological things that might come onto their farm because of agritourism? Yeah, um, you know, that's a good question. 
the the agritourism operations that I've worked with and consulted with, they're they're more geared towards like a lot of concession stands and it's you know the the agritourism liability isn't necessarily get out of jail free card. Um, so I mean you you still have to practice good food safety. And the only there was actually a Tennessee Supreme Court case on Tennessee's right to farm law that I was talking about whenever we say, you know, farming can't be a nuisance. Well, it's sort of an interesting fact pattern to, to your point. I, I'm, I'm going to come around to, to answer your question about biosecurity whenever, whenever I come back to this. But so this, so this individual, he had a agritourism operation in East Tennessee and it was a corn maze, typical fall stuff going on. And some of his neighbors lived, lived around there and, th- and it was fine for a number of years. Well, the operation grew, and he also started bringing in uh, country music stars. So Luke Bryan comes and performs a farm tour there, and he has helicopter rides at the farm and all these other things. Well, you know, there's, there's a question of is that, is that agritourism? Is that farming at that point? If Luke Bryan comes and, you know, there's 15,000 people at a concert, well, you know, obviously that's, that's changing the nature of the community. So, and this woman was – an older lady and she wanted to quiet her lifestyle. So she sued this farm and it made its way all the way to the Supreme court, Tennessee Supreme court. And the Tennessee Supreme court said, uh, no, that that's not considered agriculture. And that's not something that's covered by that statute. Now the Tennessee general assembly reworked the statute and they kind of broadened it about agritourism and they, and they gave it a pretty broad definition, but it hasn't been, retried you know that issue hasn't been contested since that maple leaf farms case so the question is you know is that you know would you have that get out of jail free card if you if you had a big concert and something something took place so in that same line when it comes to biosecurity you know if if you've got a winery or if you are running a concession stand yeah you're a farm yeah, you've got farming operations going on, but you still owe a duty uh, to the public who are purchasing your items that you're practicing safe food handling techniques. And, and that's something that's, that's very important. So if you, know, you put something in a chain of commerce and it's been contaminated uh, due to your negligence, then you're still going to be liable. And, and that's something that, that's important for people to know um, in, in regards to this. Now, there's a question about pick your own fruit, you know, and, and a lot of these operations as far as, you know, where did the contamination occur? And then I think you're, I think that, that can present some gray areas. Um, but farmers should, should be aware. They should uh, consult with their attorney. I always encourage everybody to, to form a team, you know, I mean, if you, if you think about the Avengers, you know, it's a team of superheroes that come together and they're able to achieve a whole lot more collectively than, than what they would individually. And I think farmers need to have a team. They need to have a great insurance agent who's going to help them manage their risk. They need a financial planner who's going to help them plan for the future, help them be able to you know, work towards retirement, make sure that they're going to help them with that succession planning that I talked about earlier. They need a great CPA. Uh, my cousin, Stephen Jones, is a CPA. He works in the same office building that I do. And he does a phenomenal job for, for his customers. You need a good loan officer. My brother, Colton, he's a loan officer with Farm Credit. 
he does a great job servicing his clients, making sure that they have the capital that they need to keep their operations going. So building a team of people with different specialties, with different knowledge bases, that's going to ensure that, that your farm is going to be successful, not just today, but tomorrow and even to the next generation. Gotcha. That's all really good advice. Yeah. Kind of all about surrounding yourself with people with a common goal and kind of making sure that your program or your farm succeeds. Um, and you know, that, that's a good point. Kind of talking about the Luke Bryan concert. I mean, it's on a farm, but it's not really agro-tourism, but it kind of is, but it's kind of not. Right. It sounds like one of those exactly. loopholes. And I, so I remember when in our first take of this interview, I was telling you about a weird Tennessee law that I heard. And I mean, it was a meme, so I don't really know how reliable it was. But it was something like in, in Tennessee, it's illegal to shoot a whale from the top of a, mo- of a moving car. And I thought <laughs> that's, a pretty, that's a pretty specific and very interesting law in Tennessee. So are there, are there any other lesser known odd laws in Tennessee? Yeah, um, you know, that, whenever you mentioned that uh, to me, I, I looked that up and I, I think that that, that may not that that may be fake news, uh, Trevor. Uh, okay, okay, law. dang it. So, I, it's I'm a, good meme, I'm a victim of fake news. You are a victim of fake news, <laughs> but, you know, BuzzFeed is hilarious. So, I mean, that's uh, it's still a funny, uh, funny thing. But as far as weird laws that, that, I, that I'm aware of in Tennessee, I think that um, one a funny one is uh, steamboat racing is illegal in the state of Tennessee, and that's kind of anachronism uh, from a time gone by. That that's what you see more so in some of these funny laws. It's um, just stuff that maybe it was relevant at one time or another. Um, basically, you know, you can't. That that kind of goes back to the days when the Mississippi River was. Uh, a, a large, you know, it's still a large channel of commerce, but it, most of the commerce moved on, on steamboats and it was a, you know, public safety hazard. People were racing steamboats up and down the Mississippi River. Uh, it's still illegal for um, people to duel in the state of Tennessee and it's actually would keep you from holding public office in the state of Tennessee if you were a duelist. So that's why a lot of people uh, during that, during the 19th century, they would go to Kentucky or North Carolina to go and fight their duels. So no dueling, no steamboat racing in the state of Tennessee. Um, but as far as what you were talking about, illegal to shoot any game um, from, your, from your automobile, uh, I, would, I will say that it is illegal in the state of Tennessee to hunt um, from any moving automobile. Um, watercraft or anything like that unless you're confined to a, a wheelchair so maybe maybe that's uh, so maybe not in 100% fake news but it's uh, you, you can't you can't hunt anything um, from from a moving automobile but I uh, don't think you're going to be seeing a whale in the Tennessee River anytime soon <laughs> man I mean I don't know how you guys spend your free time I mean no steamboat racing and no dueling I mean no shooting that's, whales. From no shooting cars. whales. I mean, dang, just got to watch TV, I guess. <laughs> that's a that's a Thursday night in Florida. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Florida, man. Um, steamboat races and has a duel. <laughs> typical Thursday night. <laughs> that's right. So, so when it comes to Tennessee agriculture, I think like Jack Daniels. So that means grain, alcohol, also, you know, moonshine. So what are some big commodities grown in the state of Tennessee ag-wise? Oh, sure. Yeah. So Tennessee has got a a huge ag industry. That's our number one industry in the state of Tennessee is agriculture. And it's, we have $1.2 billion in food and beverage exports uh, just from the state of Tennessee. And whenever you look at 
you know, what we're exporting. We've got, uh, you know, we've got a, a lot of row crop farmers in West Tennessee. We have a lot of livestock producers in uh, middle and East Tennessee and West Tennessee as well. Um, but, you know, just to kind of give you a breakdown, I mean, Tennessee is sort of a, an interesting place in the fact that we, we have such a temperate climate here that we, we have the ability to grow a lot of different variety of, of crops and livestock. And each grand division of the state of Tennessee is so different. So if you look at, if you look at the flag of the state of Tennessee, it's three stars within a circle. And that stands for the, the stars represent each of the three grand divisions of the state, west, middle, and east. And when you drive from Memphis up to Mountain City in east Tennessee, you think you're going through three different states just because the terrain is so different and the ground is so different. So West Tennessee is very flat. You have that Delta Basin and it you know, runs between the Mississippi River and the Tennessee River. Uh, Middle Tennessee, that's where Nashville is. You've got a lot of rolling hills, a lot of beautiful farmland. Uh, a lot of it's being developed right now just with the, with the growth that Nashville and Middle Tennessee is experiencing in the Franklin area. Um, but you've, you've got a lot of diversified farming operations. East Tennessee is very is much more mountainous, beautiful country, uh, beautiful mountains there. See a lot more uh, chicken farms. You see, of course, some famous East Tennessee tomatoes, uh, a lot of tobacco farms, and livestock operations in that neck of the woods. So to kind of give you a breakdown as far as what you're looking at, um, you know, cotton uh, produces about $224 million in cash receipts in the state of Tennessee. Um, hogs are an $85 million industry in the state of Tennessee. Uh, tobacco's a $93.5 million industry in the state of Tennessee. Wheat's a $93.3 million industry in the state of Tennessee. Um, uh, milk or dairy production is huge. We've got $130 million in cash receipts from our dairy farmers. Um, but the big three in the state of Tennessee are uh, soybeans, number one. That's $758 million, almost $759 million in cash receipts, followed by cattle and calves. That's $566 million in cash receipts and broilers, chickens, at, and that's at $494.5 million in cash receipts. So, I mean, we, we produce, I mean, you know, corn, soybeans, cotton, hay, dairy, cattle, calves, boilers, hogs. I mean, just about anything you can imagine, we're, we're growing it here in Tennessee. Yeah, it sounds like Tennessee is very diverse in terms of agriculture. It sounds like, I mean, there's broiler chickens, there's livestock, there's um, soybeans and all that, and all the grain. That's really neat that you guys are so diverse. And I had no idea about the three stars. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I didn't know that, that was just a thing, that there are three distinct areas in Tennessee. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful state, and I, and I always encourage people to really experience all three grand divisions. I mean, whenever you go, don't just think that if you if you go downtown in Nashville that you've seen Tennessee. It's a, it's a big state, and there's a lot of beautiful places to see. I think that I think Tennessee has uh, the the most ecological diversity um, from one end of the state to the other that you'll find anywhere. So we met, I got in touch with you because of a fellow guest on the show, David Hafner, and you and him yes. both, both met because you're part of an ag advocate program. So tell us a little bit about that program and how you and David met. 
Yes. So David, a great Floridian and a good friend of mine, he and I are part of a program through the American Farm Bureau uh, Federation. It's the uh, PAL program. Um, PAL, P-A-L, stands for uh, Partners in Advocacy Leadership. And basically, the program takes Farm Bureau leaders from across the country, and there are 10 in my class, and we travel all across the country at different modules, learning about effective communication, learning about leadership, learning about the agricultural industry, and how to be better advocates for that industry. And we all come from super diverse backgrounds. Uh, we've got you know people from, uh, we've got almond growers from California. We have uh, green bean farmers from Florida. We have cattle farmers from Colorado and uh, people from all points in between. And it, it's just a great group of people, first and foremost. I'm honored to be amongst them. And uh, David's been such a, a good friend to me. Um, but we've had the opportunity to travel to New York City and go to one of the largest open-air farmers markets in the world and getting to see what agriculture looks like in an urban setting and you know connecting with consumers one-on-one -on -one, people talking about what they're looking for in in their food talking to chefs about what they're looking for from farmers we were able to go to washington dc and visit with lawmakers and policymakers about exactly how do we create ag policy and how do you, how do you become an effective advocate to your congressman, to your senator. And we were supposed to be in St. Louis this week, um, but unfortunately with the coronavirus going around, we canceled that trip, but we were going to meet with um, some industry leaders in St. Louis about uh, trying to understand you know, their, their role as stakeholders in the agricultural sector. And we were planning to go to Japan in the fall, but again, with the coronavirus, that one's probably not going to happen. So we're, we're having to, like, uh, like farmers do every single day, we're going to have to adapt and overcome, and we'll make some, make some course corrections and changes. But it's been a great program, wonderful people facilitating the program from the American Farm Bureau Federation and great classmates. I, I couldn't ask for anything more. I certainly hope your Japan trip still happens because that would be very cool to go to Japan and see what all they have going on over there ag-wise. Um, oh, I know. I was really looking forward to it. Oh, I bet. Yeah. What have been some of the biggest takeaways as being part of that program? Like, what are some of the biggest takeaways you've seen as being a part of it? Just the, the need for farmers to connect with their customers more. I think that it's interesting that we, we live in such an age of connectivity. You know, I mean, I can, I can send someone an instant message halfway around the world and they can read it. And we are, we are more connected than we ever have. I mean, everyone has a video camera in their phone. Everyone has a, has a camera on their phone and you can immediately upload it to Twitter or Facebook and you can be instantly connected with thousands and millions of people. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, just the speed of communication. But at the same time, I feel like there is more of a disconnect between what goes on on the average American farmer's uh, homestead every single day versus what's going on. And whenever that family buys that product, whether it's fruits and vegetables or a meat product and sets their table with it for their family or they go to the restaurant and they enjoy that meal. 
than ever before. And I, I think that we really need to be bridge builders between our industry and our customers. And, you know, we, we do a good job in, in state legislatures and we do a good job in uh, Washington, D.C., but I think we need to do a better job at dinner tables across the country and we need to do a better job on Main Street. And we need to do a better job on Wall Street, too. And I think that that is something that really opened my eyes that so many of these decisions, so many of these regulations that are being put on farmers and so many of these tastes, they're being driven by the, the larger industry that's purchasing our products. So it's not necessarily Washington, D.C. that's making this decision. It's Walmart or it's McDonald's. And having a voice in those corporate boardrooms is critical. And I think that that's one that we have maybe forgotten about in uh, this idea of advocacy and agricultural outreach. You know, we need to, we need to be communicating with all of our customers, both those, those individuals who are going to buy it at, the, at that end point, those retail consumers and customers, as well as, you know, the big box stores. So what do you think are some good ways that we could do that? We could get in the boardroom with Walmart and with the big stores and kind of advocate for ourselves and kind of going off of that. What are some, what's some advice that you would give to consumers about if they wanted to learn more about their food? What, what, what advice would you give them? So I'll answer your, your second question first. So as far as consumers, if you want to know more about where your food comes from and if you want to, to know a little bit more about farming in general, Farmers markets are an incredible way to do that, and and I you know the, the great thing in Tennessee you know we maintain a number of different websites whether it's UT Extension or the Tennessee Department of Agriculture has a program called Pick Tennessee Products, and you can go online and you can find exactly where those farmers markets are in your communities, and uh, you know there's there's a, a lot of different opportunities from people from all across the country, uh, you know, both urban and rural markets to have access to uh, those, to those farmers markets. And, you know, going back to connectivity, I mean, you know, we live in a, in a day and time where you can find a lot of farmers who are doing a lot of direct sales. And, and I think that that's the best way to do it. I mean, buying your food stuff directly from a farmer, you'll, I mean, there's no better way to do that. You build a relationship with that farmer. On our family's farm, we do some direct beef sales, and we have built relationships with people that they buy from us every single year. And we know who they are, and we know where they live. We know their kids. They know us. And that, that trust is built there, and that relationship is built there, and it's, and it's a good and profitable relationship for both parties. So I would encourage people to buy direct. It's good for farmers. It lets us put a little more cash in our pocket and cuts out the middleman. And it's good for consumers too. It just builds that, builds that trust and builds that reputational factor. So I would just encourage people to, to buy direct. I would encourage, I would encourage people to, if you were, if you're a customer or a client, even if you don't know anything about agriculture, but you want to learn more, follow the farm traveler podcast. I mean, follow Amanda Radke, who's on your program recently, you know, follow some of these agriculturally minded people. And they're going to take you on a tour and show you behind the scenes. You're going, to, you're going to see what it's like to, you know, grow cattle on the Great Plains. You're going to hear from farmers from all across the country if they listen to your podcast. And I think sometimes we're in this echo chamber where, you know, those of us involved in agriculture, we're kind of preaching to the choir. But I think that we need to encourage and invite other people to kind of come into to this 
you know, this, this opportunity that we have to communicate with one another uh, in such a direct way. And in the same way, I think that's how you're going to reach out and connect with some of these individuals that, that are involved on, on some of these boards. And I, and I think that that means reaching out to people maybe outside of our, of our cultural centers, you know, so if, if you go to church and you only talk about church things with people at church, well, you're not being a very good disciple, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, we're, we're supposed to, you know, know if you're, if you're a Christian, then you're supposed to, you know, show Jesus Christ to everybody that you come into contact with by your actions and by your words and how you treat one another. Well, if we're involved in agriculture, if we only talk farming with those that are also involved in farming, then we're, we're missing an opportunity. So how you break into those boardrooms is you, you use those relationships that you have because we all know people from different spheres, from different tribes, so to speak. You know, take those opportunities to say, hey, did you know that, you know, my family has a beef cattle farm and invite them out to the farm and, and talk about what's going on. If somebody says something that's not necessarily you know, based upon science and actual agricultural knowledge, you know, gently, you know, give them the opportunity to, to see things for, for what they actually are, you know, don't, you know, care enough about someone that, you know, that you're not just going to let them continue in an uneducated way. So use those opportunities to, to politely and respectfully educate people about agriculture and what it means to, to be a farmer. And, and I think, you know, we do that at the person to person level. I think we can do that by working with organizations like Farm Bureau that has such a, an important and vibrant voice in getting meetings with some of these decision makers at these large companies, inviting them to our conferences, inviting them to our workshops, inviting them out to our farms, and being able to have that collective voice and really building those partnerships with them. I think that 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 can be beneficial for them as well because they'll, because, you know, what we have in agriculture, we, the, the American farmer still has a very good reputation. It still has a very good name. And a lot of these businesses and a lot of these corporations are seeking those, those credibility building partnerships. And I think that that's something that we can offer them. And I think that that's something that they would be interested in, but we've got to ask. And sometimes that just means picking up the telephone and just, and just talking to people. Man. All good advice. All good advice, Matt. So if people are in Tennessee and if they need some ag advice, how can they get some ag log advice specifically? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. So they can uh, shoot me an email at um, my email address is Matt, M-A-T-T, at T-E-N-N, like the first three letters in Tennessee, advocate, that's A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E dot com. So it's Matt at T-E-N-N advocate.com or they can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is country underscore lawyer underscore T-N. Then that's my Instagram account and you'll get to see lots of pictures of Paul Herford cattle and (laughs) me riding my tractor and all kinds of neat stuff. So I would love to hear from any any of your listeners. Always love the opportunity to, to come and speak and talk about agriculture. Well, absolutely, man. Well, thanks again for being on. I'm glad that the second one worked out. It is recording, so we are good. Well, Matt, again, we wish you the best of luck, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. Again, 
Thanks so much for helping us get to 52 episodes of the Farm Traveler podcast. Can't wait for you to listen to 52 more, and then 52 after that, and then 52 after that, and hopefully we'll see how far the show goes. Anyway, we are going to see you in season two. We're going to take a break for about two to three weeks. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook for updates on the show. If you don't see us then, we will see you when season two launches. Thanks, and everybody, stay safe. the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv